Hey everybody, it's here at Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast about the deep dives into the lives of killers. And if you're new here, When Killers Get Caught is a three-part podcast where we discuss true crime stories that resonated with us. I'll lead you down the path of a well-known or lesser-known killer, discuss their childhood, lives, methodology, and of course, how they got caught. And then Brian finishes us our episode off with a paranormal palate cleanser. Before we start, I just want to remind everybody listening that the Thick Dids merch drop ends on January 31st, 2022. And this will be the only time that you could get yourself a hoodie or a t-shirt like this one with our big booty Mothman on it. And please, once you get your merch, please tag us TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. I want to see your fix. One of my uh, friends who bought a mug posted it on her IG and it was really cute. So it's so nice to see you guys wearing it. And this is just your reminder that just like in 1967, once the Mothman is gone, he's going to be gone for good. <laughs> and so you can get that at whenkillersgetcaught.shop. Oh, goodness. Listen, I found myself thinking that that was a very clever. Sorry. Uh, it, 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 it is. <laughs> I'm, wearing, I'm wearing my Mossman shirt today. By the yeah, way. so am I. I have mine in gray. So do I. <laughs> I'm I imagine. Like, <laughs> I'm trying to like show on the camera, but I have my uh, iPad in front of it. There we go. <laughs> yes. I like my little Mothman and it's fun because people are like, is that a Mothman shirt? I didn't realize that the Mothman has as many groupies. Oh, yeah. As, as he does. Yeah. You know what's funny? Actually, before we start, I'm sorry. It's going off a little thing. Uh, so, I was at practice Monday night, right? Um, and my coat, I'm wearing my Mothman shirt for practice today. Nice. Showing it off. So, it was my, my maroon one, I think. And my coach, you know, her daughter drew the Mothman picture for us. And mm-hmm. she's like, I see you wearing <laughs> what she drew. I'm like, hell yeah. This is awesome. And she's like, oh, by the way, she might message you later about some things. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Um, so I might have some things to talk about in the future. Oh, like some creepy stuff. <laughs> some creepy stuff. Not, yo, your derby friends are always giving you <laughs> messages about creepy stuff. I know. I like, love it. Like, yo, uh, did you hear about this place about 40 minutes away? <laughs> what is up with Pennsylvania? But regardless, this week in true crime. So, uh, this is a story that didn't just happen, but what they just found is pretty wild. This all goes with this pastor in Akron, Ohio. And so, at the end of last year, uh, he was arrested and his church was shut down for because he was an unlicensed funeral director. Oh, And the church has been shut down for about four months. And so here's where things get crazy. Apparently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a woman who is only referring to herself as a urban explorer, like, was in the church because it's pretty much abandoned now. Mm -hmm. She was in the basement and she discovered boxes of cremated remains in the church dating back to 2010 this happened at the greater faith missionary baptist church in akron ohio and uh 
the Ohio Bureau of Investigations actually have opened an investigation into this as of January 11th. And so now, on top of the fact that he was not a licensed funeral home director, Uh uh, he also now has to deal with the fact that there were 89 uh, sets of cremated remains that go back to 2010 that he never... He didn't get to the families? No. And here's the thing. Um, you're actually not allowed to deny people their cremated remains just because they can't pay. Right. Uh, yeah. So when someone does that, it's actually illegal. Like, people can make payment plans and things of that nature. But in all situations, like, I, like last year when I talked about a lot of the, like, funeral home fails on TikTok, mm-hmm. a bunch of people who work in the industry, like, messaged me. And they were just like, yeah, that's really illegal. Um, you, you give people their family's remains. You don't hold them over their head. Like you don't extort them. So now, like, and here's the thing: like, I we don't know if he was following the rules. Normally, when you get cremated, um, to make sure that that you can always be found, they put a little tag with your body before it goes in the yep. machine. Yep, and that little tag goes with you from the time you enter the facility to the time you leave. And that way, if for some reason they get misplaced and 20 years from now, somebody finds uh, these, an urn in their attic, they can take it to the local funeral home, check the number on it and get it to the right family. But if, since he wasn't doing this correctly, I don't know if those tags are there. Okay. We so, don't know. <laughs> see, we we went down two different lines of thought when mm-hmm. you when you said about he had remains in his basement of <laughs> uh, because no 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 because he had cremated remains in his basement right mm-hmm. and you you went down the path of like oh no these are just family members that he didn't return the ashes to I'm like what if these like, are did he kill people yes what if these are like <laughs> victims of his that are just sitting in his fucking in the basement of the church. So far, his only um, crime is just taking advantage of people who are grieving. <clears throat> but we'll see how that continues to go on since uh, they're bringing in the big dogs here. Apparently, the church is in Columbus, but um, he's from Akron. Okay. Uh, he was Ohio also charged stuff. with racketeering, tampering with records, identity fraud, abuse of a corpse. In multiple counties, because I guess the the families are from multiple uh, areas. Lucas County, uh, Cuyahoga, Summit, Franklin. Because apparently he was operating multiple funeral homes across the state. Oh, wow. So he had a... <laughs> they, they've been finding this stuff since 2019. That's crazy. Um, he also did get in trouble at one of the homes for... Failing to refrigerate a human body. That is a law they have in Akron. Probably a law in Ohio. Probably not a bad idea considering what we learned about in the last year. Um, Multiple counts for all of these things. Um, And I guess this all started because this another funeral director talked to him and was like, hey, we don't have space at our facility can we hold a person at yours? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Well, that man, like that body that was supposed to be held there, he was supposed to have been buried next to someone, one of his relatives in 2004, and they found his remain, his cremated remains two weeks ago. So he was accepting burial money for bodies and then cremating them probably because it's cheaper and pocketing the difference. But uh, wait. So that's what started it. But wait, then what did he bury then? What was buried? Who knows? They're going to have to exhume. Oh. The, I mean, there's probably not a body in there. Yeah, so maybe there's somebody else. One. Yeah, exactly. Somebody else's body. Yeah. So they're going to have to, like, this is going to be a total nightmare. I feel bad if you're from any of these counties in Ohio and you work through this man. Who knows? And also, like, they're probably going to have to test the cremated remains now to make sure that they're more, not more than one person or that they are actually a person because... He could have been filling bags with dust. That's happened before. Like, we don't know. This is, I hope this dude goes to jail for a while. This is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, that's... Oh, my God. There's a mugshot here, too. What's his name? Shantae Harden. You suck. <laughs> You're pretty bad. Pretty shitty person. <laughs> anyway, that's mine. Total, like, craziness going on over in Ohio. But what about you? Well, there is some craziness going on in Pennsylvania as well. Of course. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because you said, what's going on in Pennsylvania? Well, I was like, let me tell you. Oh, goodness. Okay, so I don't know if you heard, but Sunday morning, there was uh, there was a floating car found in the Susquehanna River. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. Nobody uh, told me. Okay, where, so where was it? Like closer to where I used to live, or? Um, goodness, I'm gonna say a little, a little further up, or okay, yeah. But okay, so apparently this car, no one knows how it got into the river, but um, people were called on Sunday morning to investigate this car that's in the river because there was a man. A woman and a two-year-old child that were on top of this car. Oh my! Oh my God! Yeah. So well, at least it was floating. Yeah. Um. So it just gets worse after that. So not only so so okay. So the man, woman, child. Um. Mm-hmm. The man is holding a knife, and he's threatening this woman. Okay. Well, she's holding the child. Bad. Yeah, it got got real bad real fast. Um, so yeah, he's threatening her. Well, he's on top of like when they're on top of the car. Um, I think he he does this after what he says first. So I guess police were there, and you know they're trying to figure out how they're going to save these people. And this guy, he's just yelling at the police. He's like, "Shoot me, shoot me!" And uh... and then he turns the knife on the woman, and he starts threatening her. And the police are just like, "Okay, well we can't let him hurt her." So. They shot him. Um, That's what he wanted. Um, <laughs> yeah, he got what he wanted. Uh, he got shot, um, and then he fell into the river. Oh, and, no. Like I said, this happened Sunday, okay? 
current. Um, the, so the Susquehanna River, I don't know if anybody has looked at it recently, but it's really icy. There are like a lot of moving ice, moving fast. There's a current underneath for there. It's like, it's very, very active. So he fell into the river and the wife, well, okay. So it turns out that this is his wife. Um, mm-hmm. that's on top of the car and his child. Um, and they are rescued. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read a quote. Um, I forget where it's at, but so I was reading this on Pen Live. But mm-hmm. one of one of the you know the search people they, they were searching they they were going to first send out a boat to rescue these people that were on top of the car. Then the the boat that they were going to use so, was wait this yes. is. Like the same day as the snowstorm. Yeah, yeah. The snowstorm later <laughs> that day, but yes. Yeah, but I mean that means they would have had to stop search, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, because I, I mean, I don't. I know that area got it worse than we did where I am in Pennsylvania, but yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, it, it wasn't bad here, but like I'm hearing from my other friends in the state that it was not good where they were. Yeah. It's not um so the boat they tried to use i guess it the, the waters were just too rough for that one from to use the boat so they used i guess a cherry picker to get them like you know what they do when they're saving people from like burning buildings oh they use. like a helicopter thingy and you sit in the little nest and they pull you up not a hel- i know they use a helicopter but they didn't use that they, it was like a something like a, an extendable ladder to use on, you know, the fire oh. trucks and stuff like oh, that. Oh, I could never. Stuff I'd like be that. More afraid to hold on to the extendable ladder. Um, like it's just like a cherry picker type of thing. I forget what they call them. Like, I forget okay. what they're called. Um, but so so the wife and the child are rescued, but they they were going to search for like the husband, but the waters too icy and they're too fast. It's too cold. So. Is they like it? W- it Listen, w- it, it at w- least he'll be preserved when they do get to him. Basically, it's cold as crap outside right now. So, yeah. Uh, it, okay, Listen, here's, here's okay. I, wait. I'm not taking anything away from the people of the Midwest. I'm sure it's like three degrees where y'all are right now, but it's cold for us. So <laughs> that wind chill, that wind chill is crazy us right now. So. That wind chill is ridiculous. Okay, so I found a quote that I was looking for. And it goes, if you end up in the river, you're probably not going to survive. Um, the position of the car within the river and that the fact that it got stuck on some rocks is what saved the mom and the child. So Okay, it probably would have sank. Yeah, it probably would have, something else would have happened. They're, they, they're lucky they got saved. Um, but... They like we don't know how the car got into like we can speculate how the car got into the river like he was were... probably trying to kill all three of them and yep. he failed. Yep, that's probably that's that's the thought that I was going with too. Oh yeah, this was going to be a murder suicide. Yeah, absolutely. And so then, at least that didn't happen. No, it was just a suicide by cop, I guess. And yeah, and then it became suicide by cop. Yep. Yeah. Um. But yeah, yeah, like this happened. 
like this was reported i think it came out on monday um yeah. so nothing new i like i was looking i was looking and looking like is there anything new do we have any other backgrounds nothing yet so maybe we'll find some other information about you know what happened like between oh yeah but yeah that's what i got well what i have for you this week is the beginning of what's going to end up being a two-part episode. And I've been putting this off for a long time. Mainly because I have a lot of angry feelings about this particular killer. And you're going to get to hear them. It was so funny. People on TikTok were like, I can't wait to hear your perspective. I don't know <laughs> if y'all are ready to hear my perspective. I don't so, think you're ready. One of my TikTok followers, and I'm sure you can guess who it is. Hams. Hams it is. <laughs> who is he's been with us since the beginning. So like that's why when Hams is like, just do something, he's like, Can you talk about this person? A lot of times I'll do it. Because you know what? He's been here since the beginning. And you know, yeah. That's pretty dope. But uh he has been asking me to talk about this particular killer for a while. Pretty much ever since I made a video on TikTok where I said it's your boy Ted Bundy because <laughs> everybody seems to love him so much. It's your boy. So I've often expressed a lot of frustration with this, uh, with with him because I feel like he's been romanticized in modern media, and a lot of his story is now like mythos. And because of the way the media has portrayed him, he's some kind of like boogeyman or phantom. But in reality, Theodore Robert Bundy was a man. Um, one of my favorite quotes from Anne Rule, who we're going to talk about her a lot because she was his friend. She wasn't actually like the big book, uh, true crime book writer when this was going on. Um, she worked at a crisis suicide hotline alongside of him and they were friends. And that's why. Uh, but one of the quotes she, she said is Ted was never handsome, brilliant or charismatic as crime folklore deemed him. But as I said before, infamy became him mm. he was a man nothing more nothing less and i will admit ahead of time there's some biases here i'm a proud member of the ted bundy hate club but i have promised a lot of you that i give you a fair in-depth analysis of him and so today we're going to talk about one of america's most infamous killers and we will start as we always do. So, he was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24th, 1946, at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, and, like I said, who was his Friday rule, uh, says that he didn't know his mother's real identity until he was about 24 years old. He more than likely suspected that the woman who was raising him was his grandmother, and his, uh, but his actual mother was Louise Cow. She was raised, he, they were raised as brother and sister. Hmm. Uh, and that his grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cow, were his parents. They all lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, along with uh, two aunts who he believed to be his sisters, Audrey and Julia. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I found some interviews with Louise 
And she talked about regretting uh, this decision. It was with an interview with uh, Dr. Dorothy Lewis. But it was the 40s and being an unwed mother was still a very big deal. And not only did she have a baby out of wedlock, Louise, but she refused to say who the father was. And it's possible that she never knew. She was 22 years old. And up until that point, like she was the golden girl like of the siblings. Everyone, you know, loved her. And then all of a sudden she has a baby out of wedlock and well, not so golden anymore. Right. Yeah. This was such a closely held family secret that other like aunts, uncles, cousins didn't know or it was only like whispered about. Like it was a suspicion, but like they no one ever confirmed it, which is really wild. Like family secrets tend to get told. It's true. <clears throat> so Ted's a young boy and he doesn't have the best upbringing and no one really under like knows what's going on in the Cal household. In fact, uh, Bundy didn't talk about it until he was in prison. And he began to paint this story of how dysfunctional this family was. And it all centers around Samuel Cal, his grandfather, who was a bully, a bigot, openly racist and very violent. And of course, when serial killers talk about things when they're on death row, there's the suspicion or the worry that they're just lying. Right. Yeah. But some of other uh, Ted's family members did confirm this. And like when I say this guy was racist, I mean, he hated anybody that wasn't white. Um, it was really common for him to launch into these like tirades about Italian people, uh, anybody that wasn't Catholic, uh, black people, obviously. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, and they, it would just happen. He would just get mad and go off on a tangent. Um, it was, he would also get violent if you like didn't sit there and agree with him. And he also got angry and very violent. If anyone asked any questions, about who Ted's father was. In fact, it was so weird to Ted and like the, the sisters mm-hmm. that they believed for a long time that uh, Samuel Cow might have raped uh, his oldest daughter. <sighs> that because he was like so defensive about it. I was think so, I was thinking something else. Look, <laughs> that's another way to look at it. What were you thinking? I was thinking like maybe I don't know some Italian person like got oh. his mom pregnant or something. Just, <laughs> I mean, he might have just been racist. <laughs> yeah. For I, I mean, for a time, it, uh, Italian people were like the lowest mm. of the white people in America. So. Isn't that weird? There was like a white people hierarchy for yeah. a little while. Yeah, because you then you had like Irish that were like hated. For... They were also like on that ranking. I'm just like y'all all look the same. I'm like y'all both from Europe. What's going on here? Uh, y'all are all up there. What are you talking about? Why you hate each other? Damn. But yeah. Um. So then we have that. So there's the the potential that perhaps Ted Bundy incest. We'll never know. Mm-hmm. We also have another issue going on simultaneously. 
Eleanor Cowell, his grandmother, absolutely miserable. Eleanor gets hospitalized and they put her through uh, electroconvulsive therapy because they're like, this will fix your depression. Instead, what it does is makes her almost agoraphobic. Refuses to leave the house, which is generally uh, like terrified to leave the house. Samuel also has some mental health issues, but he's not going to admit it. Instead, he would just be walking around the house talking to nobody in particular. Uh he also abused animals that crossed his path. He would kick like a, a dog if it got in his way. Like if like a neighbor's like cat was somewhere, he would just like pick it up by its tail and throw it. And this is I'm the just, grandfather, right? That's the grandfather. Yeah. Okay. And then we're talking about Ted is like a toddler at this point. Mm. Um, apparently like, uh, Ted's aunt Julia said he would get angry and jump up and down like in a rage um, and like none of them looked forward to their dad coming home from work he never abused the kids uh, it, it was more like physically it was more emotional and verbal like I said that contributed to Eleanor's mental health she like could never speak it was just always and he did physically hit her so I said, after too many shock treatments, Eleanor just was like, I'm done with life. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to stay here in my room and do nothing else. So this is all happening while Ted's still a toddler. And this is also when he begins to exhibit some bizarre and strange behavior. More than once, um, his aunts would wake up and they'd find little baby Ted carrying knives in the middle of the night placing said knives next to them on their beds um and the the sisters were worried me too uh but the like the way the one the one aunt was just like no one acted like this was weird but it's very weird that this child is like prospecting stabbing us like yeah like a child laying knives next to my bed oh <laughs> uh, yeah no thank you like i get creeped out when my kids just walk around at night <laughs> exactly he's going down to the kitchen pulling out the knives and then taking them upstairs and thinking about things and wh- it's wild that a ch- like a baby would be doing this okay Um, when Ted was only about three years old, he discovered pornography. He and his cousins went into, uh, Samuel Cowell's greenhouse where he had his little garden and they found loads of magazines. And so that was the first time that Ted saw porn and he would continue to seek it out all through his childhood. That's, that's, that had made a big impression on him that mm-hmm. wow oh yeah and did i mention that samuel cowell was also a deacon at the local church no you did what the, <laughs> what the hell no <laughs> why are they always at the church <laughs> either way this is getting traumatic for everybody involved so louise actually takes ted and she moves to tacoma washington he's about four years old it's 1950 
at this point, he only knows the instability of a, his very unwell father and equally unwell mom. They move in with their cousins, Alice, uh, Alan and Jane Scott. And at this point, uh, both Louise and Ted went by the name Nelson so that Louise could pretend that she was a young widow and no one would question why she had this four-year-old boy. Okay. Now, in 1951, Louise meets Johnny Culpepper, Bundy, at a church singles night. And the two fall in love. They get married in 1952 when Ted is six years old. Ted took his stepfather's name, and that is how we know him to this day. Bundy. Uh, Louise would go on to have four more children uh, with Johnny. But from the beginning, Ted never felt like he was a member of the family because he didn't really know he was Louise's son. Mm -hmm. So, like, he was just these kids' cousin. Right. Not his brothers and sisters. So he felt like he was just kind of hanging on. Uh, They lived in a very small house. They had very little money. Uh, The relationship between Johnny uh, and Ted was never very great. Um, Ted was shy and socially awkward. And he thought the key to people liking him was him having better clothes. Uh, And as a child, he had these like fantasies. They were, it was pretty significant because he would talk about it with people that he was going to be adopted by Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. And he was going to get to live in a mansion and it was, he really deserved better things. Uh, but Johnny was a working class guy, five foot four, and he worked in a hospital as a cook. Um, and interestingly enough, when Ted was like six, he legitimately told, like, we're talking about his like kindergarten friends, that he purposefully staged a public tantrum and peed himself to, in an attempt to embarrass his new father. Oh my God. Now, Louise Bundy has insisted, even after uh, Bundy's execution, that his lack of a father in his early years didn't affect him. She said he never asked about his dad because there were no other young kids in the neighborhood and she never mentioned him. And he, she said he never asked, uh, both Dr. Judith Lewis and I agree that a lot of the things Louise has said in interviews sounds like she's hiding a lot of stuff. And even, yeah, even in the eighties when she was an older woman at this point, she was still kind of saving face for her family. I don't see why. Like you're you're already that old. Like just spill the beans. We need to. Yeah, know. I it's, it's still a wonder. Yeah. But uh, since Louise was so secretive about his father, Ted began to make up his own story, and it wasn't good because that's kind of what kids do. He filled in the blanks since his mother wouldn't. He assumed he was unwanted. He had been abandoned. Uh, He told a Utah state prison psychologist after he was caught later on that when he was 13 years old, he found his birth certificate and it said father unknown. Uh, Ted told the doctor that it didn't matter to him. But I think from some of the other interviews that I've read that this created kind of a separation between Ted and his mom. Like, so this always happens a lot when they pull a serial killer in, they make them, do little tests. Remember I told you that Anthony Sal had to answer questions when he was in prison. Yes. Yes. Anthony Sal would say things like, I love my mom. 
And he was deeply abused by his mother. Ted never said, I loved my mom. He would say things like, she paid the bills. I had a roof over my head. She never yelled at me as a child. Hmm. That's a disconnect. Even if it's not like a aggressive or violent disconnect, but it's just a very, it's a line there between him believing what, that she loved him or not. Right, yeah. He also told one of his girlfriends later in life that when he was about 10 or 12, a cousin told him he was a bastard. And that was when he became distinctly angry with Louise for making him vulnerable to humiliation. Didn't care about the actual state of his fa- of his father. Just that people knowing that or thinking that made him, meant they could humiliate him. So like I said, whether it was 13 or 24, like he told Anne Rule, it's a moment of his life that I would consider to be upsetting and the beginning of a downward spiral. Uh, it's probably a big surprise to people listening that uh, he was not a charming child. Uh, the media has pushed really hard at the idea that Ted Bundy was charming and charismatic. And he might have been in his like personal life as an adult, but he wasn't with strangers and uh, he wasn't when he was little. Was he, he awkward? A, uh, he was very awkward. He had a speech <clears throat> impediment. He wasn't very athletic. He uh, failed to make the high school basketball team and baseball teams every time he applied. Um, he was this loner who had these grandiose plans for himself. And even a minor failure failure was considered unacceptable to him. Um, he was completely oblivious on how to talk to girls at all and only went on one date in high school. Like I said... Um, so we're going to give a pause here. Mm-hmm. One of, so we have what we know are Ted's original attacks and murders, but there's one that people have suspected for a little while. And it's the rumor or, or the concept that he killed a child in his neighborhood when he was 14 years old. Mm-hmm. This is something that police in Tacoma have been looking at. Uh, in Washington as recently as 2019 a little girl by the name of Anne Marie Burr went missing from her home uh, in Tacoma on August 31st 1961 Bundy and his family lived literally like three blocks away her mother woke up checked on each of the kids in the morning and Anne wasn't in her bed her room showed no sign of struggle their living room window was open and when the police arrived they noticed one of the garden benches had been pulled up to the window and there was a shoe print they went door to door in the community looking for her uh but one of the issues that happened here was that they all lived next to like uh, within blocks of the university of puget sound and the university was under heavy construction at this time so there was a lot of traffic in the area with a lot of strangers coming in and out of the region. Anne's older siblings went to the construction site and saw that there were all these ditches. And so they went to the police and were like, she's probably there. Like she's probably in one of those construction ditches. And then by the time the police came, like only a couple days later, they had paved over the entire area. Oh, what the hell? Police work wasn't <laughs> as fast back then hmm. but yeah so i mean the the 
prevailing belief is that uh, Anne's body is under the university, which is sad. Um, but the question is, why do people believe that he did this? Mm-hmm. Well, 14-year-old Ted was a terror in, in Tacoma and his little area. He was known for killing animals in pretty grotesque ways. He was stealing people's pets, setting them on fire, pulling them apart while they're still alive. Um, he was also a well-known peeping Tom. He would walk by people's windows and look inside. He was specifically looking for women. He would also walk into people's backyards and touch their underwear. Specifically women's underwear. Mm. A woman by the name of Sandy Holt says that when they were teenagers, he attacked her. He straight up walked up to her, grabbed her t-shirt and was like, Come on, little sister. I want to show you something. And Sandy was like, uh, no. And he straight up like was like, no, you're going with me. And he tried to drag her away. Sandy's brother was like coming up the block and saw this. Took off chasing him, jumped on his back, knocked him on the ground and just started whooping his ass. As as you should, as he and deserved. The brother was like, listen, don't you ever put your hands on my sister. Ever again. I'll fuck you up again. <laughs> Unfortunately, on top of the gross behavior as a teenager, once he was caught and convicted and on death row, he started talking to the media. And in 1986, he began talking hypothetically about his first murder and how it happened when he was a teen and how he took a child out of her home, took her into the orchard near her home, molested her and then left her in a ditch. Come on. So, of course, Anne's mother saw this. Um, Her name was Bev. And she wrote to him, and the article, the, the, the letter is something. Um, she just straight up was like, I, I feel like your first murder was my Anne Marie Burr. The bench from the backyard was used to climb into the living room. The orchard next door was a dark setting for murder. What did you do with her tiny body? And she said, like, God, I forgive you. Bev's letter is pretty much, at this point, like, I know you're talking about stuff because you want the appeals to go through. The appeals aren't going to happen. You're going to die. You've got nothing left to lose. Confess your sins to me and God. Mm-hmm. Of course, faced with being honest, he denies it. And he sends her a letter saying, at the time, I was a normal 14-year-old boy. I did not wander the streets late at night, and I did not steal cars. I had absolutely no desire to harm anyone. I was just an average kid. And he signed it, Peace, Ted. That is absolutely a lie. <sighs> he did wander the streets during the day and night and he did steal cars like then, that's confirmed details <laughs> and then just the fucking dismissiveness god damn i hate you so much yeah and peace ted Fuck. so unfortunately there wasn't a whole lot of dna taken at the time um they're trying like the Tacoma <coughs> police are still trying to see if anything could be connected to him and marie burst case is still cold but uh, people like Rebecca Morris, who wrote the book, Ted and Anne, The Mystery of a Missing Child and Her Neighbor Ted Bundy, they think he was telling the truth. He told a lot of truth before he died. Mm-hmm. So while we don't know if this was his first murder, like I said, we do know that he told uh, his biographers in prison that this was also the time that he got interested in sexual violence. Just as quickly as he admitted this to one writer, though, he would then turn around and completely deny it to another. 
And one thing that we know about power and control serial killers is that um, these thoughts and feelings don't arrive randomly. He didn't just become like 25 and decide to start sexually assaulting people. They start fairly young and they build over time. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't lost on anyone listening to Bundy uh, that he was harming animals at a young age. That hits the uh, psychopath triad that we've talked about many other times. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm referencing the, the psychological breakdown of serial killers <clears throat> created by John Douglas and Robert Ressler in 1972. Um, Bundy falls into what's called a power and control killer. These like these kind of killers like to exert power and dominance over their victims. And the sexual attacks are a means of doing that. And it's safe to say that Ted felt very helpless in regards to his life. He didn't have the life he wanted. He felt he deserved more in terms of financial success and things. So some of these depictions of sexual violence were ways that he might have been finding to feel powerful even while he feels like he has no power like one of the things he also denies but also admitted to was when he was in high school hunting through garbage cans for pictures and videos of pornography that people threw out Hmm. also when I, i mentioned he was a peeping tom and women in the community were already freaked out about him he also broke into a couple pieces people's houses and he got caught and he also, like, he got caught stealing a car uh, when he was in high school. But wait. it got expunged from his record when he turned 18. Didn't he write in a letter that he didn't steal any cars? Yes, indeed, he did. I told you, he was just straight up lying okay. to, to Bev Burr. Dude, come on. Okay, whatever. All right, all right. <laughs> and then to break it into houses, what'd you break into houses for? Just to peep closer? I uh, think he was trying to steal porn and anything else he could find. Just go to a store and steal it. God. <laughs> I, you weren't allowed to. Well, I got. He wasn't oh, they, allowed they, they, to the right, store. Right, yeah, right. Because like you got to be 18. Under 18. Okay, yeah. Either way, graduates from high school. He ends up at the University of Puget Sound, just around the corner of his house for undergrad. He was only there for two semesters. Uh, he transferred to the University of Washington for his sophomore year. Uh, he didn't like the students at Puget. And he didn't like them because it was a. Um, it's actually like a small liberal arts college. And you know what that means. It's expensive. <laughs> and a lot of the kids who went to that college had more money than him. <sighs> so he transfers to Washington, is studying Chinese studies. Uh, he may, he meet, he's good, his, his first dorm is uh, McMahon Hall. And that's where he meets his first girlfriend. His first girlfriend has spoken to people but she has no interest in being known so for our uh, purposes we'll use the same name that uh, Anne Rule used which is Stephanie Brooks but that's not actually her real name um, she wants not she wanted nothing to do with the memory of Ted Bundy the two bond over a love of skiing and despite him not liking the wealthy kids of Puget Sound, he didn't mind the very smart, wealthy and pretty Stephanie. During this time to kind of keep up appearances, he works two jobs. He volunteers with the Republican Party. Uh, he ended up working for the office that was trying to get Nelson Rockefeller elected president. 
Uh, in fact, Stephanie and Ted went to the 1968 Republican National Convention, and then Stephanie broke up with him. She told Ann Rule that it was because of his lack of ambition, bad grades, and immaturity. Hmm. He responded to the loss of his first love by dropping out of college and leaving Washington. Uh, yeah. He stopped in Colorado, visited family in Arkansas, too. Then he went back to Philadelphia, enrolled in Temple University for a semester, and then moved back to Washington in 1969. Many of the psychologists who've evaluated Ted uh, once he was captured say that this breakup was the catalyst in his life, the thing that caused him to kill. Um, they relate this to the fact that Stephanie had long, dark, straight hair, that she always wore parted in the middle, and several of his victims look like this. Mm. Ted has denied this. He denied it say, until his death, saying that the only thing his victims need to be for him to grab them was attractive. Yeah. And half what? of his victims are blonde. And what did you find attractive? What did you find attractive, sir? These blondes, okay, that looked like your first love. So yes, obviously. I don't know. I kind of agree with that. I'm, I'm, I agree with that too. I think because a couple of them fit the bill, but like he wasn't always. He he hits organized. He gets organized and disorganized. Mm -hmm. But like the the first kill was a blonde girl, and if if it mattered that much, in the beginning they would have all been brunettes hmm. um so it might just be a coincidence uh yeah i think it was a, a coincidence that we've created this connection here but back in washington 1969 he's 23 he uh gets into a relationship with a lady by the name of liz klopfer she uh works as a secretary at the university of washington school of medicine she was divorced. She had a daughter. They met at a bar and Liz originally rejected him when he asked her to dance. But eventually they had a conversation and she realized she liked him, even if he was a bad dancer. Uh, the relationship was hot and heavy from the start. Um, she said she loved him right away. And just like Stephanie, she encouraged him to do better for himself. Uh, only this time he actually tried. He re-enrolled in college in 1970, this time majoring in psychology. And by all accounts, he was a very good student. This is when he also began volunteering at the Seattle Suicide Hotline Crisis Center on Capitol Hill. This gave him credits toward his degree. And if we're honest, it also allowed him to feel like he was in control of people's lives. So it gave him a little bit of that boost that he wanted. At least for a time, it was a a safe outlet at the crisis center. That's where he met and became friends with Ann rule. She was a former police officer turned crime reporter. And of course, Ann didn't know that her new friend was going to start killing people pretty soon. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. <laughs> Ted graduates with his degree in psychology in 1972. He starts working for the Washington governor, uh, Daniel Evans during his reelection campaign. Um, do you know how he uh, made himself useful? How? He would pretend to be a college student and then go and volunteer at the opponent's office, learn like the talking points and secrets, and then turn those over to the governor. So he was a mole. Highly unethical. 
Mm-hmm. But the chairman of the Republican Party in Washington thought this was impressive and hired uh, Ted to become his assistant. Of course, of course they would. Of course they now, would. Mm, well, he had goals of being a lawyer, but he had awful test scores. But with his very new and powerful friends who sent recommendation letters to him, he entered the Puget Sound Law Program and he starts law school in 1973. Now back in Tacoma, he hooks up with Stephanie again. Stephanie had graduated and moved to California, so he's maintaining these two long distance relationships. Stephanie's like, well, dang, you actually made something out of yourself. We can date. Mm -hmm. Uh, He doesn't break up with Liz. He leaves Liz in (laughs) and uh, he even introduces people to Stephanie as his fiance. Oh, my God. Everything's going great. And then he ghosts her in the fall of 1974. She said she called him for a month and he picked up one time to gaslight the ever living crap out of her by saying, what are you talking about? We haven't dated since 1968. <clears throat> Stephanie just chalked it up to him trying to get revenge from undergrad and moved on with her life. Uh, okay. I would. Yeah. I thought the same. Uh, Yeah, by 1974, he's working for the Washington State Department of Emergency Services. He becomes friends with a lady named Carol Ann Boone, which was platonic at first, but Carol would become his wife eventually. But that comes a lot later. 1974 is when everything changes. He's ultra moody, erratic. First time he's violent toward his girlfriend, Liz, in Washington. Their relationship had always been rocky. Like, they would break up and then he would be like, no, 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 I was wrong. In fact, once they even got a marriage license at the courthouse in 1970. But she hadn't told her parents that the two of them were living together yet. And so her family came to visit one time and she was like, hey, can you move all your stuff back to your apartment while they're here? And he got really mad and he tore up the marriage license. Because back then, you know, you're not supposed to live together until you're actually married. But, okay. Okay. Um, things like that happen all the time. He wasn't violent with her until 1974. Um, and later that year would be when she began to think that he was the man killing the college girls. <laughs> um, he would get really weird when she'd ask him, why is there a meat cleaver in your desk? Why are you carrying surgical gloves in your coat every day? These aren't these aren't signs to you. Wait, no, she, um, she, it she, was. In she fact, did. Liz, she did. Yeah. Yeah. She would go on to report him in July of 1974 and again in 75. But um, well, it all start the, the this starts in January. And I'm going to let you know for people listening, there is a murder a month for the next solid year. Sometimes more than once in a day. We're going to go through those now. This is probably the lengthiest section of, of here. This is just 1974 and it's real long. So Ted did his best to lie and confuse cops about when his first murders began. You know, he was always trying to like really piss them off 
-hmm. and just not be honest about what he was doing. But one thing we do know is January 4th, 1974 in Washington, Oregon, uh, Karen Sparks, who sometimes goes by the name Johnny Lenz now, uh, was attacked in her bed. She was 18 years old. She was a student at the University of Washington. She lived uh, in a basement bedroom and she had three male roommates who lived upstairs. And uh, Ted Bundy climbed into her bedroom and beat her with a metal rod and then used that rod to sexually assault her. Um, it was a very violent and traumatic sexual assault. It ruptured her bladder. She believes that the only reason he didn't kill her is because uh, her roommates started moving around upstairs and he got spooked and he ran away. She was left unconscious and bleeding um, and her roommates checked in on her in the morning and found her. Karen remembers that at like one in the morning, she remembers like, you know, you kind of look at a window and you see something real fast and then you look again and it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. She thought she saw somebody look in her window at about 1 a.m. Uh-huh. Um, she was just like, no, I imagined it. That was him. And in fact, he had been watching her for days. Um, he had he saw her at a laundromat and, and more than likely followed her. Um, her her bedroom in the basement was convenient for him. And again, like I said, uh, Karen was a blonde girl. Now, his first murder, we know, came a month later in February. Her name was Linda Ann Healy. She was studying psychology at the University of Washington. Her goal was to work with students with disabilities, and she worked for the school's weather, like the radio station, as the weather reporter. In 1974, she was a senior, and she moved into a house with her friends, and she usually woke up before everybody else because she had to go to the radio job. Uh, The last time she was seen was on January 31st, when she stopped by one of her roommate's rooms at about 11.30 p.m. just to talk. The next morning, she wasn't in her room when her alarm went off at 5.30. Um, that's when her roommates went to turn the alarm off and saw she wasn't there. And then uh, Linda's boss called shortly after and was like, she never showed up for work. And uh, she also missed a family dinner. Uh, and her mom from Seattle called looking for her that was the point when her roommates went like into her room to look because mm-hmm. before they were just like, Oh, we're not going to mess with it. Like the only thing somebody did was just walk in, turn the alarm off and leave. This time when they went in, they saw that some of her sheets were missing and the ones that were on the bed still like some of them had little specks of blood on them. It oh. appears that he tried to remove most of it though. They called the police Ah, there was no evidence. In 1978, uh, Ted admitted that Healy was his first victim. Her skull was found at the Taylor Mountain dump site. Uh, She was more than likely bludgeoned to death. Um, Now, his next victim was Donna Gail Manson. She was 19, and he didn't admit this murder until days before he was executed in 89. She went to uh, Evergreen State College. She lived in Olympia, Washington. She left her home for a jazz concert on March 12th. Never seen again. Uh, Ted admitted that it was in March that he perfected his ruse. 
he was working at a medical supply company and he'd steal supplies and pretend to be injured. He would wear a cast. He would walk on crutches. He had an arm sling. He'd ask someone walking home to help him to his car. And once you got close enough to his car, he would abduct you. Mm -hmm. Ted told reporters that he left Donna at the Taylor Mountain dump site, but her remains were never recovered. Um, It's believed that the Pierce County Sheriff's Office actually had those remains in 1978 when two fishermen found a human skull and bones, hair, and a shirt in the foothills of Mount uh, Rainer, but they were never tested and those remains were lost. It's believed the police didn't take this uh, missing persons report seriously because Donna is what was what police wanted to refer to as high risk. Uh, I don't like this terminology, but I'll explain to you what it is. Okay. So high risk victims are people that the police think are more at risk for violence because they hang out around criminals or the criminal element. Mm. Sometimes that means that you're doing drugs in the seventies. Donna might've been the kind of girl to stay out late. She wasn't a good girl. I see what you mean. Yeah. So then we have the opposite of that, which are low risk victims. I'm sure you can imagine that people didn't start making connections until a couple of low risk victims were murdered by Ted. Mm hmm. April brings the disappearance of Susan Elaine Rancourt on April 17th, 1974. She was 18, college student at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg. That night, she had gone to a meeting for students who were interested in being dorm counselors next semester. And somewhere between that meeting room on campus and going back to her dorm room, disappeared. People knew something was wrong because Susan was never late. She never missed appointments. The night of the meeting, she had put laundry in the dorm washing machine with the intention that when she got back from her meeting, she was going to finish it. So the fact that her laundry was still there was also a sign to people that something was off. (coughs) Sorry. It's okay. Um, Shortly after her disappearance, other girls on campus reported there was an older man with his arm in a sling who kept asking them to help carry his books back to his car. That car was a tan Volkswagen Beetle, same car that Ted Bundy drove. Was this like an everyday thing that he would ask these same girls? No, this was this day. Oh, okay. Oh. Another student named Kathleen D'Olivo told the police that she had helped the man the same night that Susan disappeared, but he gave her a weird vibe and he was kind of disheveled. So like legitimately, as soon as she, they got to the car, she like dumped his books on the hood <laughs> and like walked off. So she didn't get close enough to the, the passenger or the, the doors essentially for him to be able to grab her and pull her in. Right. There's another woman named Jane Curtis. She reported that the same thing happened to her three days earlier, only he had opened the car door and told her to get inside and she just ran away from him. Smart. Just like with Donna, he admitted this killing days before he was executed. Her skull was recovered at the Taylor Mountain dump site. Now, like I said, police were aware of the disappearances on campus. There was no physical evidence. And if you're listening, these locations are like 50, 60 miles apart. 
This is a very, like, this is him being an organized killer. Very calculated. Specifically going to different locations because it puts him in different police jurisdictions. And even in 2022, cops don't always like working with each other. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> Liz Klobfer was like, he's spending a lot of time out at night. And he keeps coming home later and later. And the news begins running information on how college and college girls can protect themselves if they have to be out at night. A lot of people are cautious. Another girl goes missing May 6, 1974. Roberta Kathleen Parks, she's a student at Oregon State University. And she leaves her dorm just to get a drink from the student union just after 11. Like it's we're talking a couple minute walk. A friend even saw her walking toward the cafeteria and they like stopped for a second, you know, had a little chit chat. Mm -hmm. um, And then she went into the building. She never made it back to her dorm. This was 250 miles away from the other crimes. Uh, Her skull was also found at Taylor Mountain and he admitted this murder the night before his execution. May 31st, Brenda Carol Bell is out drinking at the Flame Tavern in Burien, Washington. She goes missing. Brenda was actually unenrolled from college and kind of lost on her path. You know, she's taken some time off to figure out where she wanted to be when she grew up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, she ended up ask, like telling her friends she wanted to go home, and her friends were like, no, we're staying. So she decided she was probably going to hitchhike home. Uh, witnesses saw her talking to a man in a parking lot at 2 a.m. His arm was in a sling. Uh, similarly to Donna before, the police didn't really see her case as very urgent because she was a college dropout who liked to drink late at night. She, in fact, wasn't officially reported missing until June 17th, two weeks after she was already long gone. I just love how they categorize these these women that are going missing now. It's really it's annoying. Awful. <laughs> it's really. Um, he... mm. Mm. Well, he speeds things up a little bit. Uh, there's not a month in between this. There's like two weeks. Uh, Georgian Hawkins. She was 18 years old, and that was the end of her first year at the University of Washington. She left a fraternity party so she could go study for a Spanish test. One of her friends saw her walking on the street from her dorm room and he was like, hey. And so she stopped and they kind of talked through the window for a little bit. Dwayne remembered hearing a man laughing from a nearby alleyway. He just assumed it was a drunk person. Uh, Ted would confirm days before his execution that he was the man in the alley. He coerced Georgian into the alley by pretending he had a broken leg and was hobbling on crutches. As soon as she got close to him, he hit her over the head with a crowbar dragged her into his car. Her remains were found at what is referred to as the Issaquah site in 1975, which is not that far from Taylor Mountain, but the Seattle PD actually did try and do a thorough investigation. They went through the entire area where Dwayne had last seen her checking that alley, but they got no evidence. Witnesses remember a man with crutches asking for help. And uh, of course he was seen and the tan Volkswagen was seen too. July is a big month. This is the month that Liz realizes something's very wrong. It's also the month, the same time that he abducted two women on the same day. 
Um, this is what psychiatrists and others who study serials call, uh, serial killers would call an escalation. Uh-huh. And generally, when there's an escalation, it means that the killer is losing control. I'm not sure that we can say that he was losing control, but he definitely is fine-tuning his, his M.O., finding more efficient lies to get women to come with him. So he's kind of like pushing his, I'd, I'd say he's not losing control, but he's like pushing, he knows what he's doing now. So he's like, maybe I can do more this time and see how mm-hmm. I can get away with this time. Mm, okay. Okay. I yeah. see. I see. I see. Unfortunately, when the actual devolution happens, that'll be it. That's already, like I already wrote part of that. That's in next week's <laughs> podcast. It's real bad. Like Ted Bundy in control. Pretty bad. Out of control, awful. Um, but he, like you said, he was more. He was getting more bolder. This is the first time he kidnaps anybody during the daytime. So this day is July fourteenth. Both of these disappearances happened at the Lake Sammamish State Park. His first victim was twenty-three-year-old Janice Ott. The state park is in Issaquah, and it's about twenty miles east of Seattle. There's a beach by the lake, and it was like a nice bright Sunday at the beach he was there wearing an all white tennis outfit with his arm in a sling that day at least five women reported this creepy guy approaching them with his arm in a sling and asking for help unhitching his boat now one of those women was a woman named Janice Graham and she actually walked with him to the parking lot and then she saw that his boat wasn't there and she turned around and walked away from him. As you should. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got. I'm sorry. Hold on. Hold. On. Hold on. You have your arm in a sling. How are you going to use your boat, sir? I know. I thought that too. I was like, buddy, that's a really weird ruse. But unfortunately, for Janice Ott, she uh, she was a probation officer who had just gotten married. She was at the lake, lying down, reading a book, and a witness. Um, named Sylvia Kant, uh, who was 15, told the police that she heard the conversation between Ted and, and uh, Janice. She, uh, Sil- uh, Sylvia said that she heard him introduce himself as Ted and that he needed help attaching his sailboat to his car, which was at his parents' house just down the road. Janice agreed to help him. She was never seen again. Four hours later, he returns to the lake, which is now even busier, There he zeroes in on 19-year-old computer programmer Denise Marie Naslin. She's there with her boyfriend and a couple of her friends. The group's all sitting around drinking, having a good time. Everyone got a little buzzed and kind of fell asleep. Uh, At that point, Denise walked off, probably to use the bathroom, but she never came back. No one saw her leave the area and no one saw her again. The group woke up and they looked for her. They couldn't find her. Her car was in the parking lot. Her purse was still there. Her wallet was still inside of it. Uh, Denise's boyfriend, bless his heart, calls her parents before he calls the cops. In fact, he calls like her mom and it's like, oh, my God, Denise is missing. And Denise's parents call the police. Mm-hmm. Both Janice and Denise were found a year later at the Issaquah dump site. Um, but this was the first time the police had any kind of a lead. He used his real name. Someone heard, you know, saw, you know, heard that uh, the car he was using. And now the police were pretty sure that these disappearances were linked to the mysterious Ted in the tan Volkswagen. So you got a car and a name. Nice. 
Well, and now there's enough witnesses who are able to give King County police more evidence for a a composite because normally people were only seeing him at nighttime. This this sketch was put everywhere in regional news, every newspaper. Now, this case falls onto the lap of Robert Keppel. And if you are a dutiful listener to the podcast, you're going to remember that Robert Keppel, one, he's kind of a serial killer rock star, he's considered at this point. But he also was one of the consultants on the Green River Killer Task Force. But in 74, Keppel is a rookie investigator. And actually, he makes a, you know, uh, he decides we this is a serial killer. And we need to let King County know that there's a serial killer around. Um, that was a, personally, I think that was a very smart decision. So the problem is when he informed King County that there is a serial killer in their midst, they were getting roughly 200 tips a day. Wow. Wow. Those tips, Liz Klopfer called in. I think my boyfriend is the person you're showing on the TV. And Rule calls in. I think the man you're looking for is someone I used to work with. One of Ted's professors, like psychology professors, calls in. All of those tips were lost in the gigantic flow of information coming in. Um, Eventually, the police would end up using an old payroll computer, which allowed them to input data. And uh, they were able to see eventually that multiple people reported him. Uh But there was still no physical evidence linking him to the crimes. He slows down after his face is all over Seattle, moves to Olympia in August of 1974. He and Liz are on the rocks. He continues to write her letters telling her that he loves her. So this kind of keeps a torch for her. Years later, when he was on death row, he called Liz and he admitted to trying to kill her one night before he moved to Olympia. Oh, my God. He started a fire in the fireplace. Um, and I guess they had been having some drinks and... He put a, like he put a rag, like a wet rag under the door mm-hmm. and he closed the fireplace flume. And Liz just says she remembers waking up and she couldn't breathe. She opened a window and she put the fire out. She thought it was a mistake. Um, but Ted said that he felt the need to kill overwhelmingly and he tried really hard not to hurt her. Uh, Liz doubted that was probably the only time that happened. Strangely enough, uh, Ted said that he really loved her and the love that he had for her was destabilizing. That was his exact word, which I think is really interesting because perhaps if he had maybe focused on the love thing and not, you know, those those feelings instead of the homicidal feelings, Mm -hmm. maybe things would have ended differently for a lot of people. But instead he ran away to Utah. Now, he told everyone that knew him through work he was leaving because he didn't enjoy studying law at the University of Puget Sound. He told Liz he was going to finish his program at the University of Utah, and he drove there on September 2nd. Just before his execution, he told the police he was driving through Boise, Idaho. He picked up a teenage hitchhiker. He said she was like 16 or 18. He said he raped and dumped her. But investigators don't believe this is true. Uh, Because... 
that doesn't line up with missing women in the area at the time. Um, and he knew details when he would tell them about other crimes. Mm-hmm. So this one where he's just like, yeah, I picked up some random girl. I don't remember what she looks like. And I dropped her in some random place. I don't remember where. Hmm. Like that doesn't fit anything because so far all of his victims were at two different dump sites. They were special to him. He didn't, he didn't stop back to assault them like Ridgeway did, mm-hmm. but he did go back always to go back. be near them. Always go back. These kinds, yeah. So the police decided that he made this up to try and push back his execution. He started dropping lots of names and information to try and push the execution back. Hmm. But he pretended to work on his law degree, but instead he embarks on a six-week killing spree. Starting in October 16th of 1974 in Utah. His first victim is Nancy Wilcox. Uh, It's October 2nd. She's a high school cheerleader who lived in Holiday, which is a small, like, suburban town outside of Salt Lake City. He didn't even use a ruse this time. He just straight up pulls a knife on her, uh, walks, and he drags her into an orchard. He told the police that he actually didn't intend to kill her, just rape her, but... uh, Nancy fought back real hard and he said that he had to choke her to death and this was the first time that he had to rape her rape someone after they were dead you say have he made it so he he very much in this situation he wanted to exert his control by sexually assaulting someone he told the police he didn't need to kill Nancy there were other times in his we'll call it a serial killer career that he needed to kill. And um, this is something that also Ed Kemper discussed when he was in prison, that it's a compulsion. So when Ted says, I didn't need to kill Nancy, what he means is he doesn't feel compelled to kill her, but instead because she was screaming and fighting him, he killed her, Uh but he still wanted to sexually assault her. That was the one that was the desire there. So he did it after she was dead. He also didn't drive her to one of the dump sites. He tells the police um, he disposed of her remains at the Capitol Reef National Park. The police respond to her parents' very worried reports by assuming she's a runaway. They don't investigate her death until 1998. Uh, Sorry, 1989. I put that Uh, in wrong. 89. uh, Okay. Well, still, still bad. That's the same year that he's executed. Yeah, still bad. Yeah, I don't know why I transpose those numbers. Anyway, his next victim is 17-year-old Melissa Ann Smith, the daughter of Lewis Smith, the police chief in Midville. Midvale. Midville was a lot like Holiday in that it's a small community where everybody knew each other, another suburb of Salt Lake City. October 18th, Melissa's walking home from dinner with her friends at about 10 p.m. She had actually called her parents from the pizza parlor. And said, hey, we're all leaving. I'm heading home. Never arrives. Just like Nancy, he blitz attacked her, beat her, raped her, killed her. Left her on a hillside in Summit County, Utah. She was discovered two weeks later by some deer hunters on October 27th. (sighs) This is where things get real weird. 
when she is found on October 27th, forensics alert the police that she has only been dead for two days. Which means that Ted Bundy kept her for nine days total. Or more about seven. Oh. During oh. that time, he washed her hair, put makeup on her, painted her nails. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. This is a complete deviation from the other crimes. Yeah. Still, the October murders aren't over. Halloween, 1974, 17-year-old Laura Ann Aim goes missing. She was the, from the city of Lehigh, which is about 25 minutes outside of Seattle. Walking home from a cafe a little after midnight, he also blitz attacks her. He admitted to also doing his bizarre ritual with Laura, too. She was found in the American Fort Canyon by some hikers. November comes and Ted drops out of college. He had only been to a couple classes. He was obviously very busy um, holding women in his home. One week after kidnapping Laura Aim, he attacks 18-year-old Carol Durant. She was at the Fashion Place shopping mall in Murray, Utah on November 8th when she says a man dressed like a police officer walked up to her, told her her car had been broken into. Carol gets into the car with him and she's like, He's like, we're going to go file some paperwork at the police station. But she realizes that he is not taking her to the police station. She tells him this and he tries to handcuff her. But while he's driving and she ends up struggling with him and he hooked both of them on the same arm. She opens the car door and just leaps out. Smart, smart. Another smart one. Yeah, he's not trying to deal with the struggle. So he just drives on. Oh my god. Now Carol actually goes to the real police, tells them about this encounter. She gives a perfect description of him and his car, and she said while they were struggling, he even got some of his blood on her jacket, which she gives over to the police as well. Is 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 he still driving a Volkswagen at this time? Absolutely he is. Mm, okay. Unfortunately, while the police are taking Carol's statement and processing this evidence, he heads on over to Bountiful, Utah, which isn't that far away, and he kidnaps 17 year old debbie kent that's about 19 miles away from murray which is where carol durange was so i'm sorry i'm sorry is it is is it like normal for like serial killers like to to switch up their ammo like that like to start kidnapping so just like like you know murdering Mm -hmm. so it's not normal i mean it's interesting here because like I said, he says he doesn't feel the need to kill as much. Um, he wants to assault. He wants to assault them. Okay. Huh. I, I, I think this was calculated. I think this was a way to confuse police. But. Mm. So you think it's somebody else, and I, I get right. That. So that they yeah. would think it was a different kind of killer. Yeah. All right. I mean, at this point, profiling was in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless, uh, Debbie left her parents, uh, the, her parents at the school play to go pick up her brother from the local ice rink. She told her parents she'd be back with her brother. Debbie never came back. Her parents thought she forgot and walked to their friend's house. And there they saw her car. It was locked. Her purse was still inside. 
It was like where they had parked it, like a, you know, a couple blocks away. Mm. Debbie never made it to the ice rink. The Bountiful police insisted that she was a runaway and they wouldn't file the police report until 24 hours had passed. So the community does their own search around the school and they find a key. It's a very tiny key. The kind of key that you would use to lock handcuffs. Hmm. In fact, the same key that was able to unlock Carol Durant's handcuffs that she had given to the police in Murray. So the police are now like, ah, crap, same guy. It wouldn't be another 14 years before he admitted that he killed her. And he actually said he took her body 100 miles south of Bountiful to Fairview, Utah. They only ever found her patella and that wasn't, they were able to DNA sequence that in 2015. 2015. Yeah, they don't have confirmation of the of her identity until 2015. Wow. 1975 starts with the press in a frenzy. Four murders, an attempted abduction just outside of Salt Lake City. Liz somehow hears about these murders. And so she submits another tip to the King County Police Department saying she's convinced her boyfriend is a serial killer. Mm-hmm. In fact, she sends these messages to King, King County and Salt Lake City Police. So Ted's now on both police precincts list of potential killers. They still don't do anything. They say lack of evidence. Yeah, but he... Ted... <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Keep thinking. No, no. What's your upset? I know you're going to get... You're getting uh, emotional about this. <laughs> I am getting upset. Okay, continue, though. I know. Um, Ted's not a fool, though. He realized he made some mistakes with Carol Durant, so he leaves Utah, sets his sight on Colorado instead. January 12th, 1975, he abducts 23-year-old Karen Campbell from Wildwood Inn in Aspen, Colorado. Karen was there with her fiancé and his children, two children. They were all hanging out in the lobby of the hotel. Karen went upstairs to get a magazine, somewhere between the lobby and their hotel room. He grabs her. She was raped and killed and found a month later, nude in a snowbank not far from the hotel. Next murder, March 15th. 26-year-old Julie Cunningham. She's a ski instructor in Vail, Colorado. I don't know if maybe the passing time made people feel safer or the fact that it was 100 miles away from Aspen, but uh, Julie was on her way to meet friends at a tavern, and she just never arrived. Ted went back to his old MO of pretending to be hurt uh, to get women to feel bad for him. He was carrying crutches, and he was asking women to help carry his ski items back to his car. Uh, Julie was beaten and he later on mentioned that this time he handcuffed her first so that he wouldn't make the same mistake as with Carol. Then he drove Julie 90 miles away to rifle Colorado and raped and strangled her. He has admitted to he admitted to killing her, but they have never found her remains. April 6th, he abducts 24. Five-year-old Denise Lynn Oliverson. She was riding her bike to her parents' house in Grand Junction, Colorado. She never arrived. Her buddy has never been found. He told the police that he dumped her remains in the Colorado River, about five miles away from where he abducted her. But again, no evidence. May six, May six, he deviates again. 
this time abducting 12-year-old Lynette Dawn Culver from Pocatello in Idaho. Pocatello is 160 miles north of Salt Lake City. And this is his one of his youngest victims. Uh, he abducted her as she was leaving school, took her to a hotel where he raped her and drowned her in the bathroom. He told the police later that he dumped her body in the Snake River as a diversion so that the police would stop looking for him in other areas. And he said he changed his methodology to throw off the police. June 28th, he pick, he looks, he uh, takes 15 year old Susan cross. She's at a youth conference at Brigham young university. She was from bountiful actually, which is very like coincidental. Last, she was last seen at a formal banquet wearing a yellow gown on the first night of the two day conference. She left in the middle of the event to brush her teeth. Maybe she has some garlic and she just felt like <laughs> couldn't do any kissing. Right. She yeah. Ate the garlic food. Right. Right. Okay. He kidnapped her on her way back to the dorm. Um, he admitted before his execution that he'd buried her near Price, Utah. Her remains have never been found. Throughout all of this, Bundy has managed to frustrate dozens of police departments because he's kidnapping each young girl in a different jurisdiction, but also dumping them in a different jurisdiction, too. So after the Lake Sammamish murders in July of 74, police actually um, put out a request to everyone who was there that day. If you had a camera, we need a copy of your film. Uh, they were sure that somebody had seen the killer. He was in the background of somebody's picture. They wanted to compare it to the sketches they already had. Right. Now, September 7th, 1974, hikers ended up finding remains scattered over a huge area. This is the Issaquah site. They discover the remains of three women who were later ID'd as Janice Ott, Denise Naslin, and Georgian Hawkins. There were over 400 pieces of evidence collected from Issaquah. This confirmed for the parents of these young women, no one ran away. They were definitely murdered. So, everything goes poorly for Ted when he's arrested for speeding through the residential area of Granger, Utah on August 16th, 1975. Can I just say... Can I just mm-hmm. can I just say it's always the smallest thing they get caught on. <laughs> it is funny yep. as hell. <laughs> Honestly, it's only the Green River Killer who got caught because they were like, "We're doing the hard science here." <laughs> um, ooh, what was it? Uh, the Yorkshire Ripper. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's it's just it's just uh, it's it's funny to me (laughs) well here's what happens this is purely his fault 100 percent. so it's really early in the morning and arresting officer sergeant bob hayward sees this guy and he's like going a little fast and it's a residential district so he just wants to stop him and be like yo buddy kids live here Mm -hmm. instead ted proceeds to hit the gas and lead him. This becomes a high speed chase on the highway. When they finally catch him, they just want to grab him for being reckless, like mm-hmm. reckless driving. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they see that his passenger seat is missing. 
and uh, there's a, a a mask made from pantyhose and a crowbar and a set of handcuffs and an ice pick and, and some rope. And Hayward's like, we're going to bring him in for the speeding. But this is very suspicious. You're very amongst us. <laughs> so then, based on the fact that he had all these tools, a murder kit, Hayward applies for a search warrant. And he gets it. And uh, honestly, it was just—it was also that he ha- he was a murder kit. He looked kind of like the composite sketch. And he also was driving a tan VW bug. Um, but either way, they get, he gets the search warrant. They go into his apartment and they find proof of him being at the locations where women disappeared. This isn't necessarily enough to arrest him. They also find handcuffs, just like the ones used on Carol DeRanche. And this is the beginning of them building a case. I love Carol DeRanche. I have read her. I read her story long before I researched Bundy. I loved her. Carol was ready. Okay. She's like, I got you. I'll come in. Pulls calls him out of a police lineup. Other witnesses from Bountiful, Utah, identify him as the man creeping around campus. They charge him with aggravated kidnapping and an attempted criminal assault for Carol. Unfortunately, he's able to make his comically low bail of fifteen thousand dollars. What the fuck? Which means he only had to pay fifteen hundred. Okay, what? Well, uh, uh, Even fifteen hundred in nineteen seventy four is still too low. It's so confusing. Why so low? And they picked him up for something like for dangerous stuff, though. Why would you just, like set it so well, fucking low? Here's the next part for me, which is really cool. So the detective on the case in Utah is Jerry Thompson. And he's just like, the only way we're going to get this guy on anything, I have to talk to all their cops. So he calls up Detective Robert Keppel from Washington, Detective Michael Fisher from Colorado. And he's just like, let's meet up, share evidence. And they all agree. It takes about six months. But he goes to trial for kidnapping Carol Durange on February 23rd, 1976. He waives the right to a jury trial and he hires a lawyer. But during this case, he's a total asshole. Um, oh. He fires the guy, <laughs> tries to interview Carol on the stand <laughs> talking about this was a long time ago. This was like a year ago. How do you know it was me? Yeah. And Carol, like the cool customer that she is, it's just like, I could never forget your face. Oh, God. I, I just remember that part when he, he fired his lawyer and he wanted to question her himself. I'm like, you just. Oh, he absolutely did. And he showed off. He's like screaming and swinging his arms, totally acting like an ass. Right, because he went to law school, right? He did go to law school for a year in like a week. Oh yeah, so he knew enough. He knew enough. <laughs> he sure felt like he did. Mm-mm. Well, uh, after being a total jerk while he like uh, talked to Carol, he's a total cool and collected guy in the courtroom. Uh, judge finds him guilty, gives him one to fifteen years in prison. Everyone involved is pleased, but it's not enough. It's definitely not enough for the cops who had faced the families of 18 girls. Right. 
between 12 and 26 years old. So Colorado begins looking into Karen Campbell's murder in Aspen. And Colorado files charges for Karen's murder on October 22nd, 1976. Ted was extradited in April of 1977. And unbeknownst to everyone involved, this has been he begins planning his escape. And that is where we will end this week. Well, well. You talked about your boy. I don't like your boy. I'm not a fan of everybody's boy. It's your boy. It's not my boy. I said it's your boy. <laughs> and this is this is America. Is this your boy, America? It's your boy. Oh my god! Y'all like this guy? Side note: I I love to remind uh, women that his youngest victim was 12. Yeah, and there are two of them, which means it wasn't an accident. I mean, that's just like the same as Richard Ramirez. Like his, he had young victims as well, and people were just yep. Mm. I'm like, y'all see one semi-decent photo of them in court, and now all of a sudden, these guys are attractive. I'm like, yeah, the the lawyers do clean them up for court so that they can play on y'all emotions. That's exactly what they do. Mm-hmm. That's what they did. <laughs> they make the guys look better, and they downplay the girls if they look too cute. Yeah. Uh, if anyone wants an example of this, look up Jody Arias. I was about to say her online pictures versus what she looked like in court. I was about to say, and then they did the opposite for Casey Anthony. Uh huh. Well, no, because they also uh, Casey Anthony was also an issue too. Because remember, Casey Anthony went out like partying and clubbing. yeah, yeah. And then when she went to court, then she was just like a homely looking plain, yep. plain they person. They made her look regular. Yeah. Same thing with Jody Arias. Jody Arias was like they put her in like a big sweater, and they like had her like, uh, they had her go back to her natural hair color, which was brown. Yep. And they uh, had her wear her glasses. Like so glasses. it's interesting, but for the guys. They want you to be as attractive as possible for the women drawers. Weird. Fair. But anyway, Brian, what's your portion of the day going to be about? Hmm. I don't. I don't even know if Mike can like add. <laughs> uh, hope, hopefully, mine brings enough levity to this damn podcast today. Uh, that was frustrating. They listened to. I swear to God, Brittany. All right. <laughs> It's always frustrating. I know. <laughs> always. It's always frustrating. Uh. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> See, because this is video, we can't cut that out. I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is just audio. You could just go blip. It's okay. Uh, okay. All right. Let's let's cleanse the palate. Something less uh, depressing yes. than the continued failures of our justice system. Let's. So today, I will be talking about one of your favorite things. Oh, what's that? Aliens. Uh, I don't hate aliens. <laughs> I just don't believe everything is aliens. That's what messes me up. That's what makes me angry. Uh. People are like, oh, this everything aliens. And I'm like, it's not. It's not. Everything's not aliens. This is true. Everything is not aliens. And this story may not be aliens, actually. Thank goodness. Um, it may or may not be aliens. Um, so this is like 
with the Flatwoods monster. Okay, I'm kind of talking about a, I'm talking about a cryptid. I today. love the Flatwoods so monster. I'm not talking about Flatwoods monster today. I'm talking oh. about another monster. I think I already talked about a Flatmo- Flatwoods monster last year on one of my solo solo. Uh, oh yeah. And I was it's talking about West Virginia. It just looks so cool. It does look. It's, it's the cryptid wearing a little dress. <laughs> Yeah, in that speed. I want hood. a Flatwoods T-shirt. I mean, maybe could, later this year. I was about to say we could probably do that. Listen, that I want the one lot. that I told you I want. I know we're gonna. Get, I'm gonna get that. I'm gonna get that. <laughs> I want the Asquatch. Oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We got, we got the big butt moth man. Badonkadonk. Mm-hmm. Now we will have an Asquat. Is this theme just going to be booties this year? Maybe. It could be just. We'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> All right. We no will spoilers. talk about this later. Yes. But yeah, just like the Flatwoods Monster, this, this creature is an alien type cryptid. Um, mm-hmm. This is coming from Dover, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Um, and for anybody from Massachusetts, this is the tale of the Dover Demon. Oh. Yeah. Never heard of this one. So, let me give you a little description of this guy. Um, so, it's whole body characteristics, description, whatever you want to look at. They, they, are, they look like a gray alien. So, mm-hmm. he has, you know, a small body, big head, big eyes. Um, but he's not gray. He's more of like a blood orange. Like, I've seen pictures of him, and it's like blood orange looking. Um, okay. Yeah, that's like his color, like his whole skin As color. I pick up my phone and begin searching <laughs> for pictures of the Dover Devil. Dover Demon. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's a same. Jersey Devil, Dover Demon. There you go. Um, Images? He has a watermelon shaped head. A watermelon oh, size God. head, like a big old size, big old watermelon head. Um, a very thin, small body. I don't like it. <laughs> so, what I thought of, like, when I first saw the picture, like, like Independence Day aliens, their heads, how, how they're big in the back. Um, like, those type of aliens, but their head on, like, a small, grazed body. Like, that's why. That's why. I, I don't. Picture. I don't like. I, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna show the picture. Can y'all see that? There you go. There he is. That's the Dover demon. He is. Uh, He's kind of gross looking. Just a little bit. He has uh, large glowing eyes and spindly long fingers. Yeah, I I didn't I didn't miss that. It reminds me very much of salad fingers. <laughs> yes, <sighs> which I found deeply unsettling as a child. Everybody did. Everybody did. We still watched it. Um, I don't. And also the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got a big old big headed baby alien. Yep, basically that's kind of what he was described <laughs> as too. Head. Yeah, he's a he's a Bebo Lottie. Mm-hmm. Got more head than he got body. Anyway, um, so yeah, these fingers they're just long and they just wrapped around anything that he touched. Like they're just spider fingers, basically. Um, Gross. <laughs> and can I just say that 
the people of the cryptid sighting period, like of the, so this happened in 1977. So like in in the 70s, like whenever this area, this era of like sighting cryptids, like these people had a lot of imagination. Either like their imagination. Like, you know, it's the area of the serial killer, the area of the cryptid, like. Is it because folks were bored? Um, that's see, that's what I was thinking too. Either their imagination was running, running wild, they were bored as fuck, or they were smoking some of that very <laughs> that good stuff. That, that good stuff. That, <laughs> <laughs> because these these creatures they came up with, I, I swear they're just like damn. Okay, <laughs> like, I see weird stuff in my dreams, but this is <laughs> the real life. Is what you're trying to sell this as real life? Oh goodness! Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some of the sightings. So there were technically I think about four sightings. No, three sightings. Mm-hmm. Three sightings. Is that what I have? Yes, three sightings of uh this dover demon and after these three sightings there technically weren't any other ones after this so Ooh, okay interesting yeah. interesting yeah okay so sightings of this creature span uh across two nights and like i said never again after that so the first sighting was done by a 17 year old his name was william bart bartlett and okay. this is on April 21st, 1997. So it was a little past 10 p.m. Um, so it was dark out. Um, William and two of his friends, Mike Mazoka, Yes, that's what I'm going with. And Andy Brody. Um, they're driving down. It's, it's a street that's called Farm Street. And this is when William, he spots something... It's like it's like lurking, crawling sort of along like the bottom of this wall, and then it starts climbing up the wall, like it's the stone wall that's just like on like on the corner of the street or something like that, and he, so at first you know he sees it like crawling across the ground, so he's like oh it's probably a cat or a dog, um, but you know as he turns, and his headlights like light up this creature he 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 um he realizes it's not an animal or not a creature that he's seen before um so it had it's two large eyes that were glowing at him so i'm pretty sure they were just reflecting his his headlights um they were like round lidless eyes and just looking back at him and with that watermelon sized head on top of that tiny body and he says it looks it 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 has a peach color to its skin and its fingers just curled around some rocks um, so human esque sort of um, not quite the right complexion but somewhat. yeah yeah um he describes it as having like like you said a baby's body a baby's body um big old big headed baby little body um no one else in the car sees this thing and William drives away he drops his friends off at home and then he heads home and he draws up a sketch on of what he's seen 
Is that that little hand-drawn one? Uh, so there are two different ones, but yeah, I'm pretty sure his is the Let me see if I can... Is it the one in black and... Oh, I think it's this one. If I can... Pull... Open! <laughs> Stupid... Oh my hey, god. The, the one from Wikipedia, is it, the, is it that one? Oh, hold on, I'm not on Wikipedia. When I searched it, it was the first picture. It's, let me see. God damn it, this is... No mouth! <laughs> it has a tiny mouth. I don't think he drew it with a mouth, but let me see. Nope, there's no mouth on this picture. Oh yeah, yeah, no, okay, yeah, this, this is a picture, yes, that picture. Okay, so the one that I originally showed the people. Okay, yes. There you go, I'm putting it up again. <laughs> well, that's the that's one. That's the one this kid drew. That's the one that Bill drew, yes. Um, I have no mouth, so I cannot scream. <laughs> uh, that's terrible. Okay, so there's another one. Let me see, where's it at? Okay, so two hours later, a uh, 15-year-old, his name is John Same ba- night? Same night. Same night. Two Ooh, hours later. Ooh, this lends to credibility. Yep. Um, 15-year-old John Baxter, he leaves his girlfriend, Kathy. Um, he, her, her, he leaves her house. And that's at the, it says it's the south end of Miller High Road. Okay. Uh, then, you know, he starts walking, he starts walking home to his house. And half an hour later, he, he sees someone that's like walking towards him. And... So this is like he's close to his house, and he he thinks it's like somebody he knows from the neighborhood. So he like calls out to them, and no one answers back. So he's like, okay, and then so he keeps walking. Okay. Side note: mm-hmm. it, Does he think the alien is his friend? He thinks that he's somebody in the neighborhood that he knows. So it was walking upright with its big old bobblehead. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, because so far when I've looked up these pictures just now, I only see it depicted on like all fours. There's a there is a picture. I think it's the one that um, John, Mister Baxter here, has drawn. I think he drew a picture Ooh. of it too, and that's the one that's like it's standing up, but it's like leaning on a tree. I think that's him or somebody else that did that. Um, okay, okay, it's like darker. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see that. Oh yeah, I see it. John Baxter's drawing. Okay. I shall also show the people. Yes, yes. There you go. John Baxter's drawing. But, um, so, you know, they get closer, and it's like, who, like, you know, you're like, like, so you're not who I think you are, but who is that? Like, who are you? Like, and then. (laughs) That is a people. Hello, people. (laughs) So. The, the, it the, that reminds me of like the beginning of uh, Shaun of the Dead when they think that guy is just like singing with them. Oh yes, but really, he's dead. <laughs> this is he's John Baxter. He's like, hey, you, you, you lost. Yeah, that one. That's what that reminds me of. John's like really thinking like that's somebody in this community. Like, bro, if you don't get your ass home, child. So. There are clouds, right? The sky is overcast. And then suddenly, like, just one ray of moonlight just comes out and it hits this creature. And he sees that it's not a person and it's really, really close to him. And (laughs) so he freaks out. The creature freaks out. 
And the creature like runs off to like wooded area. Thank goodness. And, Why were you getting close? And see, the funny thing is, uh, Mr. Baxter, he chases after this creature. <laughs> oh. He chases he chases after it. And this is where he gets that picture from. Um that he drew. He sees it like standing next to a tree, like hiding from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is what happens. He sees it like standing like it's it's holding up like a tree and it has its toes like wrapped around some rocks on the ground and stuff like that. And, and he's like So same day these two kids mm-hmm. see the same thing and they both draw similar pictures. Yeah. Okay, this is okay, see, I'm less inclined to think that this is made up. Hmm. Okay, okay. I like that. I like that. Because it's two independent experiences. This is true. Um, so I have one more. Okay. So this is... The- this one happened the same day or after people learned about the first one? Because, see, that's how I feel like with Bigfoot. Like, some, a couple people were like, yo, we saw this big hairy guy. And the other people was like, yeah, we saw it too. Us too. And then it became this thing. But I feel like if independently people saw something or experienced a paranormal thing and it can be independently confirmed, Mm -hmm. that has much more uh, standing as being potentially true. This is true. This is true. Um, So this one was actually the next day. Okay. So um, I'm not sure if like news has gotten around at this point. Yeah, see, that's the the worry there. Yeah, that people want to be a part of something, so they 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 want to be a part of the story. But let's see the third one. Okay, did it deviate from the original story or not? No, did not. Okay, at all. So the third one, this is made by a fifteen year old girl. Her name is Abby. Was okay. it Bart Brabham? Okay. Brad. Brabham. I'm not good with names. I'm sorry. Especially last names. Sorry. Anyway. <clears throat> she saw the Dover Demon and it was standing upright next to a tree. And she said it was much like the sighting the night before. It was just like how um, was it John Baxter saw the demon. Just watching. Yeah, basically. Why they call it a demon? This is obviously the Dover alien. <laughs> I He's think- just chilling. Living his life. I think Bill was the one that called it an alien. I'm not sure where they got the demon from. I mean, I'm pretty sure it was like the, the That's newspapers. It's and alliterative. Stuff. That's the only reason why. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, she said she saw it near, like it was holding, it was up against a tree, and then it was near some water, uh, same as John Baxter's. Is when he proof that everybody needs water to survive. <laughs> um. But yeah, those are like the three stories uh i think john baxter is the one that is he's like still shaking he's like i know i saw something that the cover of the book is awful oh yeah it's just like an alien it looks like alien that book it looks worse (laughs) that's horrific if it looked like that i'd be terrified also apparently there's a book a movie oh no it's a short film yeah i want to watch it Okay. <clears throat> Do you want to know what some people think that this thing 
is. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So since a lot of people seen it on like all fours, they mm-hmm. they thought that it was maybe like a baby fowl or a baby moose. Baby moose are very spindly. Mm-hmm. But this the Dover demon was spotted in April. And apparently from what I read, uh, baby moose or moose, mooses, mooses, however, moose, mooses, um, they are not like in the area of Massachusetts at, at this time of spring. Um, so it may have been a lost baby moose. Who knows? I mean, but I'm just saying it's, it wasn't like seasonally ethical for that baby moose yeah to be there. but their heads aren't that big they're proportional oh they could have been the antlers what do you call those yes antlers. Yeah, i don't um, like this one it doesn't fit good <clears throat> who knows um so there's another another thing that i think it's uh i think it's it's the right one is what it actually is okay okay <clears throat> So, you know what a gibbon is? A monkey? Yeah. It's a it's a cute little weird looking monkey with spindly fingers that like wrap around things and uh, big eyes. Somebody had a pet they weren't supposed to. Yeah, and it got loose in 1977. Hmm. That's that's like the mo- the most plausible um, thing I could think of. Let's see. Is there a picture of a gibbon walking? Oh, they're so cute. <laughs> but they're furry. Why wasn't this one furry? It may have been furry. It was just dark and Oh, light. no. They walk like people. <laughs> I'm showing a picture of that as well. It walks <laughs> like a person that's kind of hunched over. I don't know. <clears throat> I, I was like, I, I thought if it was walking, it would be okay. And then here's a picture of it kind of leaned over. It does have crazy long arms. <laughs> That's a gibbon. Hmm. Look at those cute little fuzzy bodies. Yeah. <laughs> so Bruh, Their proportions are so weird. Monkeys? Monkeys are just gibbons. These particular gibbons. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to send you the picture I just showed to the people. Oh, my it's God. It's so funny. Oh, God. <clears throat> okay. So, I guess a demonologist. Oh, not demonologist. Oh, God. I'm thinking of demonologist. I'm thinking of demons right now. Cryptozoologist. Cryptozoologist. There you go. Um, yeah. Her name is Lauren Coleman. And she's like, she's local to the area. And mm-hmm. she thinks that, you know, all three of the sightings before were credible. And, like, she believes them. But, okay. like, she believes that they saw something. Oh, okay, something. She doesn't believe it's that. It doesn't... I don't know. She, she's like... It could have been, like, I think there was, like, a YouTube video interview of her in it. And she's like, it, mm-hmm. it might have been, like, a given. So... Ah, <clears throat> uh, okay. And like okay. The, the the more I saw like the video and I saw Gibbon walking, I'm like, yeah, that thing is pretty weird. And I could see like 
because you know how some animals you see how my like my glasses are reflecting the light from my 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 screen animals their their eyes reflect lights at night they're like some like cats dogs they have eyes that true true yeah um so there are also some other strange incidents that happened in this area uh, okay not i guess not like dover demonist i mean there's another one that happened in 1972 so this is like five years before uh, these three kids oh. saw this okay and he, this guy his name was mark senate and he said he swore he saw a creature in the woods and it had something like glowing red glowing eyes and he, like he turned his headlights on of course to see it and the, the, he saw the eyes um, and it was a small figure that was moving through the woods at the edge of the pond. And he's like, maybe I saw this thing that these kids are seeing. Hmm. Who knows? Okay. Um, but I read that there was like some type of true, like buried treasure or something there in Dover. I'm trying to look. Oh, jeez. Oh, so, no, okay, 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 okay. So this is from the 1600s, okay? Um, and there were sightings of the devil on horseback in this area. Oh. Yes. Yeah, isn't that one of the, like, har- like harbingers of the apocalypse? <laughs> People be seeing that all the time. People do see that all the time. No, 1600s, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I'm just saying, people seem to see the devil constantly. Oh, He's yeah. He's always taking photos. I mean, devil's always around us. <clears throat> but yeah, I'm sure, like, I'm sure I read it somewhere that there's, like, some type of, like, buried treasure or some treasure that was in this area as well that people were, like, looking for, some, something like that. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong if you're from this area or if you do more research than I do. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's that's kind of what I got for. So interesting. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I got a little alien cryptid uh, for today. You know, Ted Bundy and aliens. They well, go. I hope you were happy with the first half of that part of mine. We'll be back with the second half of it next week. Uh, I was not happy Please. with it actually. I was really. <laughs> <laughs> Neither was I. It took me a long time. I had to keep, like, forcing myself to come back and work on it. Yeah, I remember. Um, you told me I had to stop. So, yeah. <sighs> Bad times. Bad times. Well, I already got the jump on the next one, so I've been working on that one already, so. There you go. All right. Yeah, see, next week is when I'm probably going to be more mad. Mm. That means I'm going to be more mad. Got it. The hate, the hate flows through me. Oh. That kind of mad. Got it. <laughs> mm, Ted Bundy hate club. That's going to be a shirt. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. <laughs> I'm going to wear it. I wish I had thought to make it ahead of time so I could have it on during this podcast. We'll get it made. We'll get it made. 
But anyway, thank you so much for listening, watching. Only like 100 people on YouTube want to see it, but that's okay. Watch this on YouTube. Like, you can see our faces. You can see my reactions. You see my face, like, how my face was twitching today. It was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But thank you so much for supporting us. Like I said, shirt stuff. We have beanies cute little mugs there's my face there's Brian's face <laughs> and uh, you all have a good night yes good night mm-hmm.